0: Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands Podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity, and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands.
1: Eric Clark is the Portfolio Manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at Acuvest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Acuvest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of the Brands Fund or AccuVest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey
0: everybody, this is Eric Clark from Mega Brands and uh, it's been a while since we did our last podcast. Excited to do this one with a partner in the global consumer space. It's always nice to talk to somebody who kind of has similar ideals and, and ideas Um, Both of us are big proponents of the global consumption theme and then identifying the the companies and brands that really are resonating with consumers and not just discretionary and staples. This is much larger. Our consumption is about, you know, from Pampers all the way to Botox and hip replacements. So along the way, as human beings, we spend a lot of money on stuff. And if you identify the companies and the brands that are really resonating with people in important consumer categories, you can really make a lot of money in the market, but also give yourself a pretty diversified portfolio, which to me is a much better S&P 500 than just buying SPY or something, because that really doesn't track the real economy, but something that's tied more to the global consumer really does track the real economy, because as a reminder, it's about 60% of world GDP. So. Having said that, I uh, want to introduce today's guest, Sharif Farha. He's the managing partner and portfolio manager of the Safehouse Global Consumer Fund. He is in Dubai through New York, et cetera. And, you know, it's funny, we uh, we connected, gosh, a couple of years ago, right? In, 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 Pretty uh, crazy. On Sum Zero, never really got a chance to talk. And then we connected again recently through Twitter, And Twitter really is an amazing medium to be able to talk to people and connect uh, with ideas and network and things. So I'm not surprised to see them finally getting their act together and hopefully going to do some sort of a subscription service so people can kind of connect a little bit deeper through a couple of different mediums. But, you know, nice to talk to you. And I think we're going to have a a good conversation about some really cool names and, and ideas.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me, Eric. Honestly, I'm excited to be here uh it is a funny story uh just so all all the listeners know we're both part of Sum zero which is a social network for buy side professionals from across the globe and it's probably one of two or three that exist out there and so obviously when i started safe house i you know built a profile on Sum zero and you know looked for consumer ideas and i came across eric's profile i think he'd written about i'm not mistaken it might have been rh uh my, is that correct, Eric? Yeah, I, did,
0: I think I did RH, Spotify, and then there were some other ones. I think I did Five Below at one time and maybe even Dollar Tree, The Value Trap.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I read uh, Eric's RH thesis, which I thought was powerful. And I kind of like went on his profile and realized you know, Eric's managing a consumer fund. You know, I'm not the only guy. And so I messaged Eric. We planned to speak, but, you know, me being based in Dubai there's a 12 hour time difference. So it was not easy to catch each other. And unfortunately, we were probably both drowning in work. So a year or two years passed by and Eric and I start kind of going back and forth on Twitter. And we realized that you know what, we've actually met basically on online about two years ago on some zero so we never had a chance to speak. And so we decided to get in touch and we've kind of uh, kept in touch since and uh, you know, it's, it's kind of cool to be on both on other sides of the spectrum in terms of geographic, like, you know, Eric's in San Diego, I'm in Dubai, both beautiful and sunny, but, you know, big, big difference, time zone difference, and we're both global consumer investors. It's funny that I have not met any other global consumer investors (laughs) ever, except for you. I know there's a few funds that exist, but you're the first person I've actually gotten in touch with. Well, it's funny, when I'm talking to financial
0: advisors here in the US, I always start off by saying, I'm almost completely confident that nobody has talked to you about the most powerful and obvious investment theme on the planet. And they're like, well, all right, I'll bite. What are you talking about? And then I just launch into the global consumer. And they say, you know what? That is really odd. That something so big, so obvious, so powerful. And nobody talks about it. My portfolio is underweighted. Um, nobody speaks about it. Wholesalers don't talk about it. There aren't many options for me to invest in. So tell me more, which is fun for us. You know, it's 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 nice yeah. to be talking about a theme that isn't crowded when everybody's focused on tech and some of these crazy valuations. You know, we're out here just banging the table on people spending money on things. And if you identify the right companies, you can make a lot of money
1: too. It's crazy when you think about it. Like you know every time I have this conversation with people, they're like, oh, so you're gonna talk to me about tech? I'm like, "Uh, no, there's other sectors that are exciting but are not technology-based. And when you think about it, like from an investor standpoint, the consumer sector is actually probably more interesting in the sense that, you know, it's more defendable. Moats are stronger. You know, Nestle hasn't been disrupted since inception. You know, you have companies like Blackberry that went from like, you know, zero to zero. In a matter of no time, market shares are dynamic and shift quickly in technology. But when it comes to consumer investing, a lot of it's actually kind of related to the brand, right? So, how do you disrupt the brand? I haven't heard anyone saying that they're going to disrupt Louis Vuitton. I haven't heard anyone saying they're going to disrupt Lululemon, right? And so, what you find is a lot of these big global brands are actually complemented by technology, right? It allows them to scale faster, it allows them to reach and distribute to you know endpoints that they would have never reached if they didn't have like the technological know-how. So in my opinion, you know, I actually feel safer betting on a global brand over the next 10-20 years than a technology company because I don't know how tech's going to look like in 10 years. It shifts so so quickly. But brands have staying power and that's really, you know, at the core of let's call it the moat of these companies, right? So you know, that's one of the things that I was intrigued by um, you know, when I started safe house and I wasn't always a consumer investor, I was actually a generalist, uh, you know, in my past life, quote unquote. Um, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'll just give you a little bit of uh, how I kind of got to where I am. I, yeah. I think that's what a, do you think, think? That's an important part of the story. Cause we all
0: have, we all have interesting stories that led us to a category that, uh, that we're passionate about. And, and so I think yours is important.
1: So basically, Eric, you know, grew up in dubai and dubai is a very brand driven culture dubai in the middle east people look to the west what are the guys in the us what are the guys in new york buying and so i i've seen brand adoption like skyrocket here and so i always had like you know that kind of like love for brands growing up and when i moved to new york you know after kind of like university i joined a large Mutual fund, we we're managing about thirty-five billion in dollars in management at the time. International equities. I was a junior analyst, kind of started my career out of college. I was an NYU graduate, and then I joined as a junior analyst, focused on consumer staples, consumer discretionary, and and energy. But in reality, I was just kind of building models and assisting the senior analysts. But it's really where I established my foundation in kind of understanding, you know, the financial statements, understanding business models, and and kind of getting my like practice basically long story short that company was sold to aberdeen asset management in 2013 i joined the partners of RDO to form a new company called r squared capital also new york based and you know i joined as a senior analyst after a few years uh focused on both consumer and energy now you have to understand when i joined that's when oil crashed so we actually didn't do any energy investing at all so i was able to focus for five years, mostly on the consumer sector. And so that's where I developed my love for the consumer sector from an investor standpoint. That's when I started to look at so many companies that it became kind of second nature. And I kind of started to know those business models. I felt better than most people. And so I always loved working on the consumer space. But after being in New York for 10 years, you know, New York's an amazing city. It gives you so much, but it also takes a lot away from you. I made the personal decision to kind of move back to the to the Middle East, specifically Dubai, where, where which is home for me, and you know where I have a lot of family, I have a lot of friends, and I'm not sure if you know this. I think we discussed this at some point earlier, but Dubai has a limited public equity ecosystem, right? So there's not many public equity funds. There's a lot of private equity funds, there's a lot of venture funds now, there's a lot of real estate like uh, REITs or all types of real estate funds that exist, but public equity is somewhat limited and it's because the startup costs are so high here to start a new fund. But long story short, I joined a MENA equity, so local Middle Eastern equity hedge fund, Long Bias is a generalist. And I spent most of my time looking at healthcare and, and consumer and while I had a great team and it was a great shop, Uh, I mean, I was compensated well, you know, I joined when we were 100 million, we grew to 500 million in management in a few years. And and that's pretty sizable for for the Middle East. It's not like New York, where there's a bunch of half a billion or a billion dollar funds in the Middle East, there's not many private billion dollar hedge funds. And so while it was amazing, I felt, you know, it lacked the breadth and depth, you know, the, the investable universe in the Middle East is about 120 names. And so I was like, you know, what do I miss doing? I miss investing in these global companies. Okay. Well, what do you know better than everyone else? Do you feel you do at least consumer? Okay. So I looked at my personal portfolio and I realized 90% of my performance and my returns came from investments I've made in the consumer sector. And I've been looking at the consumer sector at that point for about eight, nine years. And so I'm like, okay, well, why is there no global consumer fund out there? There's not many. There's a couple. I mean, we, you know, there's the Morgan Stanley Brands Fund, eighteen billion dollar, you know, fund in New York that's been a success story as well. So it kind of keeps me optimistic. There's, you know, Dynamic Brands Fund that you manage, Eric, which I was, you know, like I tell you, like if, when I hear your story, I'm like, you know what? I'm like five years behind, Eric, basically, you know. Uh, Eric, we talk. We went through the same struggle. We went through the same stress. Let's say, and and like you know, you, you sit in front of highly intelligent, sophisticated, whether they're allocators or investors, and when you talk to them about the consumer space, it's like a light bulb moment, or it's not. And you're like, wait, am I the only person who sees this so clear? And so, you know. Fast forward 2018, I left the hedge fund that I was working in here in Dubai and I started Safehouse, which is a long biased global consumer fund. Typically, we don't take more than 20 positions. We are fundamental bottom-up investors. And essentially, we look for high-quality consumer companies at attractive prices that we believe can compound more than you know five, six years. We're not looking to buy something for a year and sell it. We're looking for winners that will continue to win over a longer period of time. And companies that will really do the work for us and so fast forward two years uh it's been a tough battle because you know COVID happened it was challenging to fundraise but you know we got through it the consumer sector was quite impacted but i think consumer sector is going to be the hot sector this year because there's a lot of pent-up demand there's a lot of normalization and recently we got a significant anchor investment from Um, Huda Beauty Investments, HB Investments, it's the private investment office of the founders of Huda Beauty, which is a global billion dollar cosmetics brand, so a consumer company. And so, you know, we're growing now and performance is good. And we're, you know, trying to be uh, a big fund doing consumer in this region and be the only fund, you know, so far that we know of, at least. I mean, and so that's, that's the story.
0: No, let's face it. Sometimes it's frustrating as you shed, but it's nice to be one of only a few that's talking about anything, right? If every if exactly. I'm one of, it, uh, of of another thousand or 2000 people talking about a theme, then, you know, that's that's a harder road to take. But what what is more simple than 7 billion people all around the world spending money on things if you can identify the brands that seem to rise to the top? across the globe. I mean, you know, and, and sometimes for us in, in particular, we have, you know, I'm not limited, I'm I'm completely agnostic to value or growth or larger, or smaller, or domestic or international, we're just trying to buy the kind of the best 35 to 40 stocks at the current time. So for us, there's a lot of macro work that helps us decide what part of the consumption theme is important. And we do a lot of style factor work to give us an idea of which style factors are working. So we know okay, for whatever reason, the market's rewarding larger companies over small and growth over value or domestic or over an international high balance, you know, high quality balance sheets over low quality, at least we can go in there and then identify the brands that qualify using those style factors. That's certainly helped us. And it's just nice to know that we both have great returns, but we do it very differently. That's always fun yeah. because that means we're picking from a great universe of stocks. And, you know, Exactly. Here's some fun facts for listeners. Nike. Everybody knows Nike. The 30-year return of Nike is about 13,330% versus the S&P at 934%, right? Dominant wow. brand in its category, gone global. Home Depot. Home Depot really is hasn't even gone outside of of North America. That return yeah. for 30 years is 10,446% versus that 930 even boring companies like O'Reilly Automotive, automotive parts, retail stores, 18,487% over a 30-year period. And then you look at Amazon, which has only been around, I think, since 1997, that's about 160,000% return versus almost 500% for the S&P. So, you know, names like Tesla that's just been around 11 years, 20,000% plus versus 247. So, if you can identify companies that are really resonating with consumers and you and they have products and services that have a global opportunity, and even better if they appeal to to younger people as well as older people, that opportunity set is so large that you know, if they execute on the plan, my gosh, the, the returns can be. Can be spectacular, and again, it's nice to know that we're, we're we're you know playing with a limited group of people, which is wonderful. Um, yeah, knowing, knowing that we don't we don't have a ton of time. People really love to to hear about themes that investors like currently. You know, last year obviously was a difficult time for the economy, but between the stimulus and the Fed uh, liquidity and and the ability for consumers to get most things online and the digitization story and technology. You know, a certain kind of company did really well last year. We were fortunate enough to be able to pivot and have a lot of exposure and had a great year. But this year is a little bit different. Comparisons year over year are harder for certain companies. And, and what's working this year versus last is is in many cases very different. So I'm curious kind of how you position the fund currently Just from a thematic perspective, you know, think big picture and then, you know, love to get into some of the names that you like currently.
1: Sure, sure. So, you know, kind of big picture. We have our portfolio cut into seven themes. First one is social gaming. We think gaming is becoming social. Kids are playing with friends, not even kids. The average gamer in the US, I think, is 37 years old. We believe in two-sided marketplaces, marketplaces that really only connect buyers and sellers. Think of uh, Spotify for doesn't produce anything think of a Farfetch doesn't produce anything um, we think we we love the passion and creator economy that's emerging in the United States specifically and it's, it will inevitably spread throughout the world we think the fourth theme is the ease of being an entrepreneur it has never been easier to be an entrepreneur globally and then you know uh, two other themes is depth over breadth we think you know E-commerce started off as Amazon offer everything. And now we're looking towards depth, like Chewy pet focused online commerce, Ulta cosmetics retailer, you know, Starbucks only coffee. Right. And lastly, uh, is retail 2.0. We don't think retail is dead, but we think retail must transform the customer experience in order to drive traffic. And so you know, happy to talk to you about a name that we think fits in, in that space or, you know, what do you recommend? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the two-sided marketplace,
0: I think, is pretty interesting. I mean, you mentioned Spotify. We own that one. Farfetch, we used to own that. Uh, we don't currently. So if, you know, if there's any any story or or kind of what you're seeing in that two-sided marketplace currently, how consumers are spending, that could be interesting. But, you know, you have uh, carte blanche to kind of go anywhere, I, I would say, if you if there's an area or a name or two that you're just really passionate about at a time when, you know, let's face it, the markets have ripped back. Lots of stocks are expensive. So I think, you know, fresh money names today get are kind of intriguing because let's face it, you know, lot, lots of stuff has moved. And, and I mean, I think we both get paid to be nervous all the time. So I'm always, yeah. you know, looking at what I own and how much risk is embedded in the current valuation and the chart versus what names I think have the best opportunity going forward because it's, you know, you can be happy about your past returns, but you have to, <laughs> you, you, can, you always have to be looking out the front of the mirror. Right?
1: Exactly. Yeah, Go exactly. On. Yeah, I mean, so w- one of the names that we are excited about, uh, we've been excited for a while, it's gone through a bit of pain, but it's recovered. And now we are excited for the next two to three years for the story is Canada Goose. So Canada Goose, um, I'm sure you're familiar with the brand. It is a high-end parka maker and focuses on kind of high performance. Like they say that, you know, if it's 30, 40 Celsius, you know, you will be able to wear this jacket and feel warm. And so it's a company that has strong brand equity and we think has multiple legs to the thesis. Okay, so let me just walk you through the thesis from a high level to give you an idea of why we think Canada Goose is interesting. So Canada Goose started off as a family-owned business and then uh, kind of had a private equity player come in and take this company public. It's done phenomenally well and you know recently it's suffered because of COVID and you have to understand that Canada Goose only has 22 stores globally and so when stores are closed that's a massive hit. It's not a company that has thousands of stores and can, you know, pick up sales on this side versus from there. It's more like, Oh, all the stores are closed. They have only 30% online. The company's decimated. People aren't going to buy high end winter jackets when they're staying home because of COVID. And so what's the thesis? The thesis is three main points. First of all, you know, You need to look at the Montclair success. So, Montclair is a company I miss. So, it kills me every day to see the stock going up because it's a company that did phenomenally well, went from being 80% wholesale to now being 80% retail. And what does that do? So, on the wholesale side, typically these companies earn around 45 to 50% gross margin. And on the retail side, Canada Goose and Montclair both earn over 75 to 80% gross margin. And so Canada Goose is a business that started off 70, 80% wholesale and now is growing stores and maintaining their wholesale exposure. So not growing it, but maintaining it, but opening new stores. And so if you look at Montclair, Montclair today has over 200 stores. Canada Goose has 20 stores. They have only three or four, uh, sorry, three in China and one in Hong Kong. As you know, Eric, China is the kind of mothership for luxury goods, and luxury spending right I mean, that's what drives growth on a global basis and that's a function of obviously income growth and millennial spending and so we think the following is going to happen and this is what we management is guiding to management want to double store count in the next three years conservatively we believe that will more than double sales because of price increases at the same time because they're doubling their retail store exposure and maintaining their wholesale exposure you're gonna have more sales coming from that high margin, 75% gross margin direct to consumer, which is online and retail, and less coming from the 50% gross margin wholesale. So you should see gross margins expand over that period of time. And the last part of the thesis, which I think nobody is pricing in, is you know, when Montclair launched, this is the Moncler. they're copying the Montclair playbook, by the way. When Montclair launched, Montclair was 95% winter jackets. When Canada Goose launched, it was 95% winter jackets. Well, what did Canada Goose just do about six months ago? They acquired a shoe company called Baffin. They launched knitwear, they launched socks. So they're going from a single product company, which is all you know, the goose down jackets to a full-fledged brand. And if they succeed in executing and becoming, let's say a quote-unquote Montclair, we think this company has the potential to triple or quadruple revenue over the next five to six years. Currently, consensus expectations are that the company is gonna be doubling revenue over the next four years. We think over the next five years, this company could triple revenue. And so we love the business, we love the brand. We think it's one of those rare occurrences where brands are becoming more global. Usually, you know, Nike's already global. Uh, it's going a bit more DTC, but it's already global. So this is one that checks all three, going more global, expanding margins, and becoming a full-fledged brand. I mean, that,
0: that's the key, right? The, the sweet spot of the returns will always come from you know a brand that's got a following with a smaller store count that decides it's time to expand globally, because then you get that benefit if they execute. Obviously, that's important. But you know, I love the brand. I mean, it's hilarious. A couple of years ago when I was, I took my family, we went to New York over the holidays. We were looking around, you know, if you're an investor in brands, you're always looking at consumers and stores to see who's wearing what, who's doing what, exactly. where the lines are. It's It drives my wife crazy. But all of a sudden noticed that everybody had a, a Canada goose jacket on. I mean, it was, you know, it was freezing cold. They're really design friendly. I mean, they're really sexy jackets they're high margin. Uh, They're not for everybody, obviously. But by the way, do you know if, have they partnered up with any of the buy now, pay later, you know, the affirms or the afterpays? Because that's a key to be able to let somebody buy that $1,200 jacket and at least spread the payments out. To me, that's
1: a big theme for us. That just helps adoption for- (laughs) It's a great point. It's a great point. They haven't done it yet, but I think they're definitely working on it uh, the same way Peloton you know, it's a big, been a big beneficiary for Peloton, if, if you know, uh, the buy now pay later with the firm, and so yeah, no, I think it's it's something on the horizon, and, and like like I said, there's so much low hanging fruit, as you just mentioned, an example of one of them, that we think it's in such early innings of growth that uh, you know this potentially has the ability to generate multi bagger returns. You know, people that listen to me anyway, they know I'm a very
0: technical person. I'm just staring at the chart right now, you know, you it's yeah. basically back to 47 where it was August of 19, you know, that might be a little bit of resistance, but geez, if you can print through there, it's 62, 65, just to get back up to that, that former high. So there's absolutely yeah. a lot of momentum in the stock. It's been a good performer year to date. I think it's, you know, it was basically at 30 at the beginning of the year, it's 47 now. Just looking into my screener, my brand screener, it's one of the top performing factors has been a 50-50 blend of operating kings, which is a combination of strong growth metrics, strong margin, and free cash flow generation and growth with pure momentum. And that thing scores in the 94th percentile. So it's right up there in the basket of of the companies that are best performing on a year to date basis. So it's from a style factor perspective, it looks great from a story perspective, it sounds great, from a metrics and a growth, and nobody ever talks about it. You know, wh- when do you yeah. hear anything about Canada Goose, right? Exactly, um, exactly, and, a and are point. There Any other companies or themes? I mean, listen, we both know, yeah. we both own Spotify for a while. I mean, if you yeah. have anything, you know, it seems like that one keeps evolving. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, that if you look at the financial metrics of Spotify, They're pretty uninspiring, but I still think this is part of the build process. And then the operating leverage comes later. And so Mm -hmm. I still love the stock and think it's going to go much higher because they're just, I think they have amazing pricing power. Like you literally, they could double my subscription and I wouldn't even blink an eye because I I just
1: love the... And and they haven't started to do that yet. So think of the potential and that falls straight to the bottom line. Absolutely. So... I Spotify is a core holding for us. Um, It's, it's a position we've had for some time. Um, And you know, the way we look at it is is there's a few things to it. First of all, today, if you want to play the music streaming place, you have two options in the market. You have Spotify and you have Tencent music. Okay. So in the developed world, Spotify is the only way to play music streaming. Okay. That's number one. Number two. I love that it's founder-led and founder-owned and driven by the same founder who started it off in his basement, Daniel Eck. Number three, you know, fine. It isn't profitable. You're 100. You're absolutely right. But what I love about it is it still generates positive free cash flow. So every year that comes by, this company is, is, which already, by the way, is net cash, generates more and more cash flow. So what's going to happen with that cash? Continuous investment in their business or acquisitions, which we've seen with podcasts and all this content they're acquiring. And so for me, that's a crucial part of the thesis. I agree. Pricing is is massive, and they're going to start implementing price increases this year, specifically in developed markets, which is a big, big win. But I think the podcast side of things and content acquisition is, is a major driver, For First of all, for the recent performance that it's gone through in the last 12 months, but specifically like when I talk to people and I'm like, do you guys understand why this is a game changer? It has three massive elements. First of all, it's content differentiation, right? In music, unlike Netflix and Disney where they have their own content, music is the same stuff, right? You listen to Beatles on Apple Music. You listen to Beatles on Spotify. There is no differentiation whatsoever. The only way to differentiate is to acquire or to create your own content. And so that's what they're doing with these podcasts, a source of differentiation, which will, number one, hopefully reduce churn. Number two, attract new customers. And number two, the main the main part of this is today Spotify pays a royalty to the music studios every time a song is streamed. So that cost is variable. Meaning if Eric goes, if you go Eric and you listen to a song a hundred times today, they're going to pay a hundred times that fee to the the, the music label. And so, as they grow revenues and grow users, their margins don't scale. But when you pay Joe Rogan 100 million fixed cost for five years and you drive more user growth and revenue growth, your cost for Joe Rogan is fixed. So, that creates operating leverage that allows this business to scale better over time. And so, when you combine those three elements, With the fact that, by the way, it's still the market leader in streaming globally uh, and Apple is unable to catch up. So they've maintained their lead against Apple, which is obviously a behemoth. Um, For us, it's exciting. We also think that as time passes, more cash flow is generated and more money is going to be invested in the business. And I'm not sure if you listen to their stream on event, which just took place, I think, about a week ago. Yeah, I got through a bit. It's, it's but, pretty. Uh, it's pretty
0: amazing. Th- these guys, th- you could easily see. I, I part of my my Spotify report from on Sum zero talked about. I showed the acquisitions that they've made, and I forget the name of it now. But the early days, they made a video, a video technology acquisition that I thought, you know, at some point they're probably going to tuck that thing away, and with all the content that they buy, they could easily either collaborate or. With Netflix or whoever, or produce their own shows from all the content, so they just have so much. There's so much optionality in the model, that yeah. uh, and the Tencent. I, I don't remember the total numbers, but they did an equity swap with Tencent Music to be, you know, where they each right. part of the other company. Have you kept up with what kind of ownership they have in Tencent Music? Because that obviously has been a strong performer. And, uh, and that I'm not sure if I haven't read an analyst report that talks too much about that equity stake and its value embedded in the stock price.
1: Yeah. So to be honest, I, I don't think it's changed. I think they've maintained their equity stake in the company. At the end of the day, it's, it is embedded in their stock price. But because, you know. Spotify is now a significantly larger company. It just mo- continues to move the needle less and less, even though Tencent has been a great performer. Sony's benefited. Sony owns part of Spotify, even though Sony is the label. And oh, sorry, last thing just about Spotify that I think is super interesting. 90% of music content is controlled by either Sony, Universal, or Warner Warner Music. And so what we believe is going to happen is that as more and more users go onto these kind of Spotify's, Apple Music's of this world, um, they're gonna have more bargaining power. And so Warner Music Group says that 25% of their revenue today, 25 to 30% of their revenue today comes from these music streaming companies. And if you assume that, you know, these labels grow at five to 10% a year maximum, while these music streaming companies grow at 20% a year, that means in five years, they will probably account for 50% of revenue for these labels. And so, that's massive. That means that they could renegotiate royalty contracts and that's going to potentially bring an even higher margin um, advantage for these companies. That's something nobody's really talking about. I think Tencent owns about 10% of Universal Music too.
0: I mean, the collusion between Sony Music and Universal and it wouldn't shock me if at some at some point, you know, Warner Music gets tucked into somewhere, you know, at the end of the day, I think the I think the thesis is that that as they grow, they just have so much more leverage over the labels and exactly. maybe they become one themselves. I don't know how the how the law, you know, anti-competition so, would go in, but it's going to be interesting to watch how
1: things play out. It's so, it's so true. It's such a good point you make. Like if you look at Netflix, the reason Netflix created their own content, the CEO says this all the time. He says, we felt that we were going to get squeezed by like the NBCs and the content producers of this world. And we didn't want to have no bargaining power. So we said, you know what? Screw it, we're gonna make our own content. And look how much of a great move that's been for them, right? I mean, that was a pure defensive move. It wasn't an offensive move. And that turned out to be now the biggest offensive move. I mean, now Netflix is, I mean, I don't know anyone who doesn't have Netflix, personally. I I haven't met anyone who doesn't have a Netflix account. You know?
0: And now now they can turn on the pricing power, which they have. Exactly,
1: exactly, exactly.
0: Any other, so, yeah. you you mentioned a couple of other names that I, I think are really interesting. Does the, the depth over breath theme, does that imply that you own a Chewy or an Alta or a Starbucks? Uh, so yeah,
1: we actually recently exited Starbucks. Okay. It's a name that we've held for a while. Great franchise, great brand. I mean, I'm addicted to coffee and so is half the world. So it's hard not to love the name. It's just, you know, Eric, in this market, it's, it's kind of hard keeping keeping sane with valuation. I mean, you know, we do our best to remain kind of driven fundamentally and to kind of remain disciplined. It's very easy to get carried away. It's very easy to become a retail trader. And, you know, I, 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 I love all your tweets by the way, because I'm, I agree with everything you you tweet on the market. It's just like, I don't want to get attacked by people. That's why I only like, and I don't tweet with you because people are pretty aggressive out there. Thank you. I'm from New Jersey though. I'm, I, I have a very. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we, we love Starbucks. We were invested in Ulta Beauty. It's done very well. We think it's going to continue to do well. Um, Chewy is one we have, we have had a position in. We still have a small position, uh, great business. I'm a big, big believer in the pet industry globally. Um, and this is pre COVID and now even more with COVID. Um, You know, people are spending more on their pets. People are buying more pets. People are choosing to have less kids. Uh, People are not having kids. I mean, see, this is all driving, you know, pet ownership. And so Chewy is just basically it's an amazing business, an amazing CEO, one of the best CEOs I've seen personally in the consumer space, almost as good as Gary Friedman, who I think is just a visionary um RH has been quite a story. I mean, he's listen,
0: he's a gunslinger, there's no doubt. I mean, he has a vision uh for RH, the old restoration hardware to take that brand and make it, you know, the Hermès or the Louis Vuitton of luxury home furnishings. And he's, you know, he's moving out with if anybody has been to any of their restaurants, there's one in uh, in the Napa Valley in Yountville that's just super sexy, great food, great atmosphere. I mean, he understands luxury hospitality. They're doing this huge project in Aspen with uh, with li- yeah. living spaces and residents. They're licensing out some yachts. I mean, they're they're definitely going to be the brand in anything for your home. And the stock has outperformed just massively since he took the, the stock, what, what was it? Basically the stock cratered, and he went and bought back- He issued a first, convertible two note third to third buy the back the company, company. At like exactly bucks, and it's at three At 20 bucks. At 20 bucks. And the yeah, stock- It's is, insane. What, now it's
1: almost 500. 500. <laughs> yeah. The greatest- yeah, like That is back in history. Exactly. That is capital allocation for you. That is an example of quality, once in a lifetime game changing capital allocation. You know, buying a 20 when everyone thinks your company is going to go broke. And now, you know, it's $500 a share. And by the way, uh, in a couple of quarters, they're going to have no more down the balance sheet. You know what he's going to do? He's probably going to buy back more shares. Yep. yep. And so, you know, I, I'm a big Gary
0: fan. They haven't even got any revenue outside the country yet. So this is, this is a perfect example of, of yes, the market is, is pulling forward some of the potential success that they're going to have because they've proven the model in the, in the most important country of the U.S. from a luxury mm-hmm. end. So I get that some of that is, is already pulled forward in the price, but right now you're beginning that hockey stick growth curve as they open their first couple of galleries in, I think it's in London. And then those are going to be successful. And then they're going to go to Madrid and they're going to go to Germany. And, you know, so, so you get it as an investor, you get a chance to go on the ride of this global expansion that's going to come. And there are so many markets that frankly, I think they're only limited by the amount of capital they can, they can spend without really, you know, kind of pushing the balance sheet to its limits. I've always thought the best thing for them to do is to just take a, a partner in different regions and share in the upfront costs and share in the, the forward growth. That way they don't stress the balance sheet. And gosh, what an acquisition it would make for a Louis Vuitton who expands exactly. categories. So I think RH probably has a double from here at least. It's going to take some Agreed. time as they build their galleries and their hospitality comes back. But that that's a name that it's a, I think it's a top five holding for us, and I have no plans to do anything but buy more when they have you know, short-term hiccups because they will. It's a very thin stock. The short interest is still high. It's not as high as it once was, but there's, there's definitely a lot of opportunity for, for that one in a world where you know lots of people are mostly focused on things that are trading at 30 or 40 or 50
1: times sales. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Eric, uh, I'm I'm not lying when I say this. It's also a top five position for us, and it has been for a while. And it's not it's it's not gonna be reduced anytime soon. And, and here's the
0: fun thing for for listeners. And I've been tweeting this on Twitter a lot. So many of these names are so under owned. There will be an aha moment that takes a a company that is kind of in the beginning of a growth curve. All they need to do is show a quarter or two of sustainable growth. And that brings in a whole new group of buyers. One of our personal favorite themes for 2021 and 2022 is the the return of the services part of the economy, which was obviously a big laggard last year. You know, Inside of the services economy is really the travel. So we've really been beefing up the travel stocks, with you know Expedia and booking on the platform side with Marriott and Hilton and Airbnb but also to us the spending that's going to accelerate because of the new stimulus plan the fact that consumer savings are so high like epically historically high those have to mean revert down and so there's a lot of spending capacity to come. And who's the biggest winner at the first part of the spending process? A Visa, a MasterCard, even an an American Express. Those three brands are right, you know, kind of at the beginning of some unbelievably easy comparisons year over year because spending halted last year. And now they're, you know, starting in April, I think over the next two or three months, they're going to have like, you know, Minus 25% on spending trackers to up hundred percent year over year change in in some of the data. So there's definitely yeah. some non-crowded areas that have lagged. If you look at the chart of MasterCard and Visa, those stocks are just sitting under resistance right now. And if, if and when they break through, and I'm I feel confident they will, there is a whole new group of buyers that are going to come into those stocks too. And you know, the travel stocks are just completely underowned. You can't find You can't find much evidence of hedge fund exposure. You can't find much evidence of growth manager exposure. Most of them are not value stocks per se, so they're not value stock owners. So unless you're a blend, you know, kind of a core equity manager, you're probably not going to own these things. But all of a sudden, the momentum managers are going to start to pick up on some of these names. So there's just a lot of really interesting stocks that aren't being talked about. And I just, I love focusing on that kind of stuff rather
1: than being the guy that's in a crowded boat. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you know, to your point, one of the things we're most excited about and what we're telling our investors is, you know, we're, we're saying that, you know, there's a lot of pent up demand. People want to travel. People want to spend. Those who have not lost their jobs have just been sitting, saving, saving, saving. And so that has to go somewhere. And to your point, it's the services economy that will benefit the most right now and one of the things on mastercard and visa that's exciting is they're also a play on travel right i mean because they get their highest margin uh business is their international spend when someone flies from the us to you know china and spends on their credit card mastercard makes a higher margin beat so i think you, you you said it perfectly these two names are actually a great way to play the comeback of spending whether it's domestic or international. And on top of that, it's nice that, you know, they have a structural, um, structural story, long-term secular growth story. So, you know, hold this thing for five years. It's very hard to lose money.
0: They're pretty interesting inflation hedges, too. So if the price of everything goes up and I'm using my Visa or MasterCard, they get paid on transactions, right? So if my $19 trip to Shake Shack now costs $23, they're just capturing more for no extra work. So there is clear inflation in the system, even if the Fed doesn't recognize the, the actual real inflation that we all experience in life. But it will yeah. be reflected in Visa and MasterCard and other payments as we leave the cashless society and move, you know, strictly to the Visa MasterCard, the debit cards, you know, et cetera. And I don't know about you, but I given my pent up demand for spending, I upgraded my my Marriott Bonvoy card to the higher end one because the points are yeah. like six X what what the other card was. And it literally pays for itself. I'm frankly surprised that the travel companies haven't created some sort of subscription model the way RH did to allow people to to sign up for a subscription and to, to get access to maybe better rooms in better parts of the hotels with more benefits just to generate some extra passive revenue as the economy comes back and as travel comes back. I think the story could be so simple Hey, there's, you know, many, many millions of people that are getting ready and chomping at the bit to go travel. You better book your travel now or you're going to end up, you know, t- traveling to places you may not have wanted to go to because the availability for lodging is going to be difficult. I'm already hearing that on Airbnb, you know, the prices are really difficult and high and availability isn't what it once was, which is going to just drive more traffic back to the hotel chains because yeah. They, people can't find a house, so there's just there's a lot of pricing power in the travel sector right now. Even in airlines, I mean, they, historically they've been pretty terrible businesses, but I think there's a lot of pricing power and demand pent up for air travel too.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's like pretty genius that if they actually charge subscriptions for a membership for a hotel, I mean, I would pay for it. If I you would. told me, listen, you could stay at any of the Marriott hotels and pay a whatever thirty dollars fifty dollars a month subscription uh per, you know membership even if you don't travel i would pay for it just to ensure that i can stay in my favorite hotel and get that same room that i liked last time i went there Absolutely. for sure it's actually a genius idea i'm surprised they haven't done it already oh, i have a buddy of mine
0: who runs a brand consulting firm and I, e- I emailed him like you have marriott as a client right he said yeah i said can you just run that up the flagpole because <laughs> i think you know with with the tens of millions of Bonvoy members, they could, they could probably generate hundreds of millions of dollars almost overnight that they could use for renovations, and you know it, it wouldn't shock me. I selfishly I wish, you know, we just stayed at the at a property, the uh, Bacara in Santa Barbara, and I love the Airbnb stay over the hotel stay because I like to cook, and I'm shocked that they. They haven't thought about upgrading parts of resorts, knocking down some walls, making them three, four bedroom suites to be able to pull in some of the Airbnb network while giving them still a lot of the hotel benefits and the services and the pool and, and all that stuff. So there's a lot of innovation that could and should happen in the hotel business just to compete with Airbnb. But, um, you know, Listen, man, we're running up against the the uh, the hour. We could talk about yeah. this stuff all day. Let's let's plan on doing this again for, for sure. Know, if there's any last uh, thoughts, you know, for listeners on how to reach you on Twitter, you know, et cetera, et cetera, with your website, please please list that because I, I want people to follow people that really have good ideas that are non consensus, and uh, you certainly have a lot of those. I love your Safe House Ideas Manual with some of the ideas; they're just great.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. So yeah, our website is safehousecap.com. You can contact us there. You can also find our ideas there. You'll see my bio, my Twitter profile is there. Um, My Twitter profile is Sharif Farha. But if you don't know how to spell Sharif, just go to safehousecap.com and click on the bio and you'll see my name there. And uh, you can read our ideas. You can reach out to us. I'd love to hear from all of you. And if there's any consumer investors out there, please let Eric and I know. Absolutely.
0: All right, Sharif, really good to talk to you. We'll do it again. Let's just kind of get in the habit of doing this, you know, every three or four months so we can talk about some new ideas in the consumer side. Sounds good. I love
1: that. Sounds good. Take care. Thanks, Eric. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening to Mega Brands, everybody. I'm your host, Eric Clark. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, Be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the Dynamic Brands section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the Dynamic Brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.